Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. So last night, um, what do they call it when you channel surf, Dan? They call it channel, channel surfing. surfing, right? And I stumbled upon this Wolf of Wall Street movie on one of like Showtime or something. I had never seen it before. By the way, I still <laughs> haven't seen you the watch? big chill, <laughs> but I plan on watching it soon. Anyway, I'm watching this movie, and I always knew this Jordan Bellacourt guy was an asshole, Belfort. but I didn't realize to the extent that he was. And the fact that Leonardo DiCaprio, who is a stud, played this guy, it should have been played by, what's that guy's name? Danny DeVito. That's who should have played Jordan Butthole, or whatever his last name is. Oh, my goodness. No, All I'm right. just we, telling guy, you. Guy, the guy's guy, a Johnson. The guy is guys, a Johnson. For any of you guys who wonder, guy is half Sicilian, and he doesn't forget a thing. I think there was some, like, squeegee Wall Streeter guys back in the early 80s who offended you in some way, shape, or form, or maybe they sold your mom, like, a penny stock, and she lost every yeah, penny. No. You know, every, because you, you will not see that movie because you have an image of those guys from the 80s. It's not an image. I mean, that's exactly who those people were. I mean, they actually probably underplayed to the extent that those guys were douchebags. And, you know, the fact that they call it Wall Street, I mean, half those guys never heard of Wall Street, and the other half couldn't find Wall Street if they were standing on Broad Street. But that's the point, Danny. Uh, you, you just got to watch the movie. It was probably one of the most entertaining movies in the last 20 years. And your boy Scorsese directed it, okay? Yeah, well, I'm just saying. Anyway, you're listening to On the Tape. I'm the exercise guy. <laughs> Adami. Joined as always by Dan Nathan and Danny Moses. Yes, we do have a lot to talk about today. We have an earnings season coming up. More market volatility and supply chain concerns have not gone away. We're going off the tape with Terry Duffy, CEO of CME Group. And later, we're going to check in with Rick Heitzman of Firstmark Capital. What a week this has been. It's amazing. Yeah, volatility is here. It's not manifesting itself in the VIX, but it's certainly manifesting itself in bond moves in currency moves, and oh, by the way, in S&P swings that have been epic over the last week and a half. You know, Thursday was a fascinating day. It's interesting that some of the market participants found that CPI print tepid. I found it to be extraordinarily hot. I guess the market is saying the, the former because interest rates have gone from 161 in the 10-year down to 152. But in my world, Danny Moses, nothing at all has changed other than the S&P continues to grind higher. Yeah, we're still kind of in this range, 4,300 to 4,500. Obviously, it's rallied back to a weekly high here. Listen, the earnings that we've gotten thus far, we knew the banks were going to be good. We knew something like SAP, and Dan had talked about before. You want to play the companies that are in the SaaS business, in the cloud, that help you become more efficient to deal with all this issue with the supply chain and so forth. So those are going to do well. We saw FedEx and that stuff before. We're going to see a lot of issues going forward. So we're in this kind of period. You look at the CPI number. Obviously, a little bit higher than expected, but not crazy. PPI, a little tamer than expected, not a big deal. But here's what I think is going on. Everyone's just watching the 10-year to signal whether they should go by the market. I'm watching the 210. Now, granted, it hasn't come in a ton, but it's 115 basis points. So the 10-year currently is at, I don't know, 150, and the two-year is at like 35 basis points. Again, both low numbers, but I'm watching that. And what is that telling us? I think what it's telling us is this. The economy is going to slow a little bit. The Fed, while they're going to start tapering, maybe comes off when they see the slowdown that's going to occur. And maybe again, 
once again, they have their back and they're going to, you know, somehow reverse course. We know there's a lot of issues fiscally that are going to be occurring, right, in, in Washington over the next six weeks. It's not going to be pretty. I think this is an opportunity to shape up your portfolio, sell some stocks down that you know are getting a free ride here, and wait for the opportunity to buy lower because I think we're not out of the woods yet by any figment of the imagination. But the one thing that's really interesting to me right now is gold. And gold has found its footing all of a sudden. Is that because inflation is now embedded in and gold is actually seen and maybe Bitcoin has stole its thunder and Bitcoin, we'll talk about that later, has been great. But gold to me is telling us something also back to 1800 and it feels strong here. So I, I said a lot there, guy. I don't know if I answered anything to do with anything, but I'm a little surprised by the rally in the markets. But I think, again, company specific, earnings, more earnings to come, and I don't think they'll be as good as we've seen the last week. And we know that the banks always start out and there's always high expectations or they're at least really well picked over. And that really kind of sets the stage for how earnings season might go. And it's not usually the trend though, right? And so I thought JP Morgan earlier in the week, they had, I thought, pretty good numbers for all intents and purposes. And by the end of the day, I think it was up a few percent pre-market. And I think it closed down 2.7% the day of its earnings. This is a tough one here, man. I mean, these companies, and I think Danny just said it, that don't really have too many issues with supply chain chains, right? It's kind of the whole bits versus atoms. I think banks are pretty well set up here. Obviously, a lot of software companies, internet advertising-based sorts of companies. Look at Microsoft right here. You know, Microsoft is literally like a few bucks away from its all-time highs. It was one of the the major mega cap stocks that actually did not have a 10% peak to trough decline. So if some of those major tech names can find their footings, if interest rates could kind of like just meander around here. I mean, what did we get to earlier in the week? 162, that was the high from, I think, early June or so, maybe it is a constructive thing for the market, especially when you consider how much expectations for GDP growth have come down of late. The one thing the banks are telling us, and the reason they had such good quarters, is consumer credit is extremely strong. We've known that, but they took reserve releases, and that's why they all beat numbers. So they're not getting the full credit for it. Yes, the stocks are up, but not to the extent you would think, given that the beat. So the consumer is not the issue here. I'm also watching oil again. Oil has yet to really come in. And again, the IEA came out and basically said over the last couple of days that there's not enough production, whether it's from ESG compliance or whatever, to meet this potential demand. And you better hope for a, a quote, warm winter because it's going to get really tough here. So again, that's a tax. I mean, that is a, that's like rates moving higher for a mortgage or an auto loan. It's the same exact thing. It's a, it's a cost of living issue, oil. And so that to me is another major issue. Yeah. Back to the stock market though. And here's a question for you, Guy. I know you like to ask the like questions them. on like the tape them, yes. here, but let's just say this, the, the Dixie, the US dollar index just got rejected, right? At that kind of 94 level a little bit. We saw yields get, like I just said, got rejected at that kind of 161, 10 year from early June, right? And then what if crude were to come in the way it came in over the summer, right? From high 70s down to what, like the mid to low 60s or something. God, man, that would be really constructive for stocks. Now, I'm not just changing my tune. I'm just telling you that if we've had expectations for economic growth come in, we've had the earnings multiple, the S&P come in a little bit. And all of a sudden, those things that you might have thought were headwinds, right, to at least stock valuations, and then you kind of put aside some of the stuff in Washington, you get an infrastructure bill, we don't have to deal with a debt ceiling, you might see new highs in the not-so-distant future. So I like to pick tops every once in a while, not a particularly consistent way to make a living on Wall Street by any means. But one thing I do not like to do is press shorts. And when things were feeling a little bit squishy the other day, you say to yourself, well, the playbook has always been to buy that dip. And that's exactly what they did. So I hate 
days like today, I suspect we get a follow through into Friday when you're going to be listening to this sort of thing. And you got to wait until you start losing some of that leadership or there's some fundamental reason in earnings season that leads you to believe that you should sell stocks. Guy, what do you think? Because you and I and Danny, we're all thinking 200-day moving average in the S&P 500 down there at 4150. That would have been a 10% peak to drop decline. Are we going to get it in 2021? Yeah, well, we got down to 4270. You know, by the way, you might be great at picking tops, but I'll tell you who's been great at picking NFL teams. That's Danny Moses, and we're going to get to that (laughs) in a second. But in terms of the levels, I still think we're going to get to 4150 now. It certainly doesn't feel like that post-Thursday, and obviously the euphoria is back, and the picture you paint in terms of lower oil, lower dollar, and the fact that equities can rally on the back of that, you're right. If that were to take place, I think that's a great scenario. I don't think that's going to happen. I think we're in the next uh, phase of this energy trade. And oh, by the way, I would submit that the market loves to test new Fed chairs. I think the market also likes to test new administrations. And I think that's what the crude oil market's doing right now to the Biden administration. I think a huge mistake would be releasing from the SPR that might assuage concerns for a day or two and maybe knock the price down a couple percent for a day or two. But I think that could be, I don't want to use the word catastrophic, but I think that will absolutely lead to the next lake higher in energy. So I hear what you're saying. I still think 4150s in sights. I will say this. You mentioned technology. We don't talk about this on the show. We don't talk about this on the podcast nearly enough. But Taiwan Semi, which made a new all-time high in the spring, early spring, and then traded horribly for the last six months, maybe found its footing in the form of an earnings release earlier this week. Maybe that's telling you something, Dan. So you, you mentioned technology. You mentioned the important stocks. Taiwan Semi might be one of the five most important technology stocks out there. Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, a foundry, I mean, this plays into Danny's rot, his rip off the tape last week when you think about what's going on with China and Taiwan there. And these weird supply demand dynamics are, you know, they're prevalent and the demand for chips are everywhere. We've seen like production stop down in all different sorts of industries, obviously autos, but we heard what Apple had to say earlier in the week about their ability to deliver some of their new products. I mean, listen, you know, we've been talking about Taiwan Semi for a while here. It's a cheap stock. It's basically up low single digits on the year. And like you said, guys, down about 25% from its highs in February. And I think the main point here is back in February, nobody, nobody thought we were going to have the sort of bottlenecks and the supply chain issues that we had right now. And I think that's part of what we were just talking about. These expectations for growth have come down here because a lot of industries can't get product, right? And a lot of consumers who maybe have their balance sheets in a good spot or corporations that do and want to think about 2022 when the pandemic's in the rear view mirror, they can't get the product and that's kind of hurting growth. So Taiwan Semi is interesting to me here from a valuation standpoint. If you look at the SMH, the ETF that tracks the SOX, the Philly Semiconductor Index, NVIDIA and Taiwan Semi make up nearly 27% or something like that. NVIDIA is up 65% and Taiwan Semi is up 5% on the year. So something's got to give here. We're going to need to see some of those other names start to participate to go all in on the SMH. But I actually think on a value play and just thinking about a play into 2022, I like Taiwan Semi here. Back to the supply chain issues. So obviously, Biden and you know his administration are obviously very aware of the supply chain issues. You had UPS, FedEx, Postal Service come out and say, basically, if you want the G.I. Joe with a Kung Fu grip for Christmas, you better order it in the next six weeks or five weeks. You're not going to get it. So what have they done? They convinced the uh, port in Long Beach, California to run 24-7. They're trying to get support from all the logistics companies out there. But what's interesting is there's just not enough truck drivers. And so one of the things is just in general, take a step back, is 
there's more job openings in the United States right now than there are available workers that we know. So the wage inflation balance is still moving to higher wages, which over the long term, as we've talked about before, is a hit to margin and it's very inflationary. But that's not going to rectify itself anytime soon. And these truck drivers don't get paid per hour. They get paid per trip of picking up a container. And if they have to wait 10, 12 hours to get a container, they're quitting because they're not going to sit there and waste their time. So these are bigger issues than just, quote, fixing the supply chain. And with the shortage of coal in China and these plants that are shutting down in China not being able to produce, this is not going away this season. So therefore, things aren't transitory. So I think the market is actually looking forward to saying, you know, we're going to be in in a slowdown for a while here just in terms of the costs are going to go higher. It's going to create a slowdown because people aren't going to pay it. And that's why I believe the 210 is shrinking here. One other thing, just on oil in general, the inventory levels on oil, not gasoline, were much higher than expected in the la- this last week and then the week before. Oil didn't budge lower at all. And maybe it has to do with Putin controlling natural gas market, making oil shoot up, whatever it is. That to me was telling also, I think people were expecting oil to sell off today over the last couple of days just on this inventory build. And it didn't. It didn't move at all. So you know, a lot of moving parts here. And I think we you know, obviously have to pay attention to earnings. And it's company specific. Again, the companies that can manage this or not, we're going to get a lot of information in the next couple of weeks. I'm not one to be hyperbolic because one, I can't spell it. I think there's a Y between the H and the B. It doesn't really matter. But I would submit, I think there's a real problem that we're not talking about enough. When I say we, the media in terms of what's going to happen in Europe this winter. God forbid there's a prolonged period of time where things get extraordinarily cold. The fate of many of the citizens of Western Europe effectively now lies in the hands of Vladimir Putin. I don't think that's a stretch. I'm actually connecting those dots, and those dots are pretty scary, Danny Moses. I agree. I mean, it's he, he keeps reasserting himself or asserting himself, I should say, not reasserting himself in that power position. And what do the Europeans do? They say, okay. They have no choice right now to do this. So he's playing games. Listen, oil high for him is great. So I don't trust him. I don't think anybody should. Yeah, Guy, you mentioned earlier that you know new presidents get tested. You're saying the market might be testing and the oil market might be testing the Biden administration. I think to your point, I mean, Putin, um, he is obviously has two decades of experience testing presidents of the United States. So that's one. And the other one is, is really China. And I know that sounds kind of conspiracy theorist. I've heard people talk about we might see some goofiness some point around Christmas time or something where the West got their head in the sand a little bit. So I don't know. Those seem like kind of black swan sort of things. The one thing I know about 25 years in the business, when we can identify some things that we think would be horrible, you know what I mean? They rarely happen. I don't think anyone's going to be trading off of that. You might see premiums built into some commodities and such because of the uncertainty, but I don't think the stock market's going to trade off at that until there's actually headlines hitting the tapes. Although they may happen and the market's already priced them in. But I understand what you're saying completely. And this is something, you know, the IMF seems to be listening on the tape because Danny Moses has been talking about stagflation for a while. And they came out this week and they trimmed their view on growth rebound. And they said there's this dangerous divergence. And Danny, you've been talking about this dangerous divergence. On one hand, you have prices going through the roof. On the other hand, you have slowing growth. That is the definition of everything you've been talking about for the last month and a half. Yeah. And you're seeing a split between the wealthy and the poor, right? It's getting worse because the people that aren't going to be able to afford higher cost products and can't function with that are going to get hit. And that's really what they talked about is the split. And that's been the argument against Powell at the Fed. That just adds fuel to that argument there. So yeah, I see that. And the other thing that happened this week was social security benefits are going to go up 5.9%. That's the largest raise. I don't know what the number is, 40 years or something like that. So 
that tells you that it's embedded, that, that the government is looking at cost of living adjustments that's going on. So that's a whole nother issue. Good for Social Security benefits. But again, from a debt perspective or U.S. obligations, right, that just adds even more problems as we're dealing with debt ceiling issues, which are, you know, paying our debts and then obviously funding the government. I mean, these are major issues. These are not going away anytime soon. So we have a lot of things to fund. We cannot afford to have higher rates in doing that. And so, yes, rates are the be all end all right now. And that's what people are watching. And that's the signal right now. And people are back to the 10 year. People are using that as the go or no go signal right now. And I think there's a lot more to it right now than just the 10-year yields. And I try to be somewhat a level of continuity, but I want to bring something up because it's important. Earlier this week, and this goes back to supply chain stuff. You know, the one company that you never think would fall victim of supply chain concerns or constraints would be Apple, right? That would be my sense. But yet, they basically told you they are, Danny Moses. Maybe the market doesn't care in terms of Apple stock. But should the market care, Dan Nathan? You know, listen, it's a $2.4 trillion market cap company. It's a global company. Um, you know, all the things that we talk about on a macro level that kind of affect U.S. multinationals, a strong dollar, interest rates, emerging market demand, all those sorts of things, those are really important to them. I think what the best thing that Apple has going for them, and this has kind of been the bull case for the last few years, and one of the reasons why I think the stock has been re-rated, trading around 25 times next year's expected earnings, which are only supposed to grow maybe one, two percent at best on low single digit revenue growth is that they've changed the mixed shift of their business to higher margin services. Now, I don't believe that a lot of the services that a lot of analysts are accounting for or allowing, you know, for higher multiples are really that interesting. I know that they get paid a ton of money from Google for search and the like, and that is obviously very high margin. It's not particularly related to their business. So I don't know, man. I, I feel like that this stock, it sold off. It was down, I think, mid teens from its recent highs here. I think that sell-off kind of makes it cushions a little bit when you get those sorts of headlines. I do go back, guys. Do you remember that day? I think it was like January 1st or say it must have been January 2nd of 2019 where Apple had its first profit warning ever, okay? Pre-announced, that sort of thing. Remember the stock got creamed. I think it went, I don't even know where it went on a split adjusted basis, but it went, went down to 125. Yeah, something like that. And it was just crazy. And then it was just off to the races from there on out. And so I guess the point I'll make is that if this is really going to be transitory, some of these bottlenecks and some of these supply chain issues, to your point, guy, they're going to get product first. They're going to be able to ship the stuff first. They have the margin over all other consumer electronics companies to kind of absorb it and then pass through some of the costs a little bit. And so Apple could set up pretty decently. I just would have liked to have seen it gone down a little harder, a little faster than it did. As I mentioned earlier, Terry Duffy, the CEO of CME Group, is going to join us in a few minutes. And obviously, CME Group has crypto, Bitcoin futures. That we're going to talk about that. But there's been a flight to something in the form of Bitcoin, Dan Nathan. And Danny, you mentioned gold. Gold is on its horse, but it's on its horse at the same time Bitcoin seems to be breaking out to the upside as well. Bitcoin is within a whisper, as you might say, or especially the way that it moves of those prior all-time highs from April. I think it was about 64,000. I think it's 58,000 now. As we're talking, Ethereum ETH is trading about 3,800. I think its highs were maybe 4,200, 4,300. And they both have actually some kind of technical things that I think some investors, traders, or whatever are keeping an eye on. Bitcoin in particular, there's four proposals for ETFs. We're going to talk about that 
with Terry a little bit for a Bitcoin ETF, and they would be buying futures. So we're seeing a big spread between the spot and in the futures market in Bitcoin. And then Ethereum, we've been talking about this with Brian Kelly, with Meltem Demers, the change in their monetary policy from a proof of work to a proof of stake is something that I know a lot of crypto traders are looking at. And then obviously just the explosion in NFTs. I tell you guys, we talked about it in February and March. We talked about it again this summer. We thought we'd be done talking about it. It is still here and the volumes are going crazy. This week, uh, Coinbase announced that they are going to create a marketplace to complete with OpenSea, which has been doing a lot of the NFTs. So to me, the narratives all sound great until they don't. And we got to remember just a couple months ago, both Bitcoin and ETH were down 55% from their all-time highs. Now they're both up 100%. I mean, I, you know, I'm watching these things somewhat in disbelief, you know, flight to quality. I do think, and I still stand on it, that there is a component of Bitcoin that is tied to the stock market. What do I mean? It was, it's been outperforming and holding in while the stock market was having its you know, 3 to 4% sell-off. I mean, it held in. It was a flight to, quote, safety for whatever reason. And when you give me the argument that it's going up because Washington is close to, quote, acknowledging it or proving it, to me, it's just such a hypocrisy in general because the whole idea of this thing was that it was a standalone away. So I go back to you want a little bit of oversight, but not a lot. Maybe it's enough to drive it higher. It's untested in terms of what environment does this work in? And I'm not a bear on this stuff as much as I'm not a bull. I don't believe in it. I believe in blockchain. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole right now. I don't begrudge anyone that wants to do it, but I prefer gold. If your argument to me is that Bitcoin's being used as you know some type of inflation hedge because it's a form of currency, I don't buy it yet. I'd rather own gold. So I'll miss out on as it goes to 100,000 and 200,000. Oh my God. Well, yeah. Listen, yeah, listen, yeah. Boomer, will you weigh in here? He'd rather buy gold. I know you're in the same camp. Gold doesn't move. There's no, not like, yet. like, like oh, I, okay. I, I know that not yet. I feel like people have been saying that for like, as long as I've been in the business for like 20 years. Let me just say, if you, my point was, if you're going to use it as an inflation hedge in an untested market, I prefer an inflation hedged. If you tell me gold or Bitcoin, I'm going to go with gold. Well, inflation expectations have never been higher in my lifetime. Gold is finally getting its footing here. I believe we're about to run off to the races here on gold. I think Guy, have- Guy will you break this tie here? Well, I'm going to side with Danny Moses because well, as you fine. know, I've give said me, on Give me a couple good and reasons. You, now you get mad at me because I'm signing <laughs> with, I'm just saying, you know, I started my career <laughs> trading the precious metal. So I'm predisposed to understand what's going on. And I do think it's Was sort that of under interesting the buttonwood tree that, that gold is that? going higher as Bitcoin is going higher for the first time in a while. If I'm a Bitcoin bull, I own, you better own a little gold because what if- all of a sudden, this Bitcoin story, and I think Bitcoin fills itself into a story. I think it goes up like, oh, well, it's obvious it's up because it was an inflation edge. Oh, it's obvious up because the Fed's cutting rates and the dollar's worthless. Like It works in any environment. You can back your way into an argument to have it work. I'm just saying, as an inflation hedge, I don't buy it. That's all I'm saying. You know who else doesn't seem to be on your side, Dan Nathan, is the great Jamie Dimon. But that's for another <laughs> podcast. A lot of people are tuning in on the tape for one thing and one thing only. I don't know if you can fast forward on these things, but they're trying to get to the point where Danny Moses waxes poetic and pulls out his crystal balls, which my senses is very painful. Nonetheless, (laughs) he's been doing it for weeks now on the NFL. I don't think you've lost yet. So Danny Moses, the microphone is yours in week. What is this week? Six in the NFL? I mean, it's crazy. It's week six. I had three picks in the first three weeks and then two each in uh, weeks four and five. So this is week six. So it's a lot of games I like. Most of them are underdogs, but the one underdog that stands out to me the most, and you know, I'm a, Buffalo Bills fan. I'm a you know huge Josh Allen fan. Tennessee getting five and a half at home on Monday night. I think they got right in Jacksonville. Derrick Henry is going to be able to run on Buffalo. I do. I think that game's going to be close. So I'm taking Tennessee plus five and a half. 
And my bonus pick, which won't come out, so I can't get credit for it or get dinged for it if it does happen, but I do like the Eagles tonight, plus seven. So, Dan, what do you got? You like the Eagles plus seven? I like the Eagles plus seven against Tampa Bay. I'm taking Tampa Bay for five hunch. Five hunch, so you're yeah. down 1,000. Yep. Yep. Okay, so yep. you want Tampa Bay minus yeah. seven. Yeah, and, and l- let me just go back to one thing. So I'm happy to be involved <laughs> in this. And so, Guy, you know the the hip-hop impresario, um, Sean Carter, right? That's Jay-Z, Dan. Yeah, that is Jay-Z. And there's a, there's a lyric, and this is really going back to our little gold conversation and you know talking about how you started. And I just want to say, this is a, a song called PSA, and it says, no matter where you go, you are what you are, player, and then you try to change, but that's just the top player. That is you, buddy, on the gold. You are going to be, that is my PSA about you want to buy the gold. I'm telling you to buy the Bitcoin. If you want to buy the gold for inflation, buy the Bitcoin. All right, player. I think that's at you, Danny. I mean, I'm clearly not a player. That's it. No, I'm not. I'll stick with my NFL picks. I don't want to wager. Fair enough. All right. So I, uh, I got the uh, Tampa giving seven, right? I got the Eagles plus seven and you're not, you want no action on the Titans uh, bills. Correct. Okay. All right. Okay. And I'm with you on the Tennessee Titans, by the way. I'm old enough to remember Earl Campbell, and people would literally get out of his way. They're doing the same thing now with Derrick Henry from Tennessee. People, are they call it a business decision now when you choose not to tackle him, but that's exactly what's going on if you watch some of these games, Danny. Agreed. When we come back, and we will be back, the CEO of CME Group, Terry Duffy, and the great Rick Heitzman of FirstMark Capital. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. Terry Duffy is chairman and CEO of CME Group, where he's responsible for overseeing the world's leading and most diverse derivatives marketplace. Duffy has held a number of leadership positions within CME. He became a member in 1981 and has served as a board member since 1995. Prior to joining CME Group, he was president of TDA Trading. In 2003, Terry was appointed by President Bush and confirmed by the United States Senate as a member of the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board, a position he held until 2013. Duffy was named CEO of the Year at FOW's 2018 International Awards. His list of accolades goes on and on. Terry, it's a pleasure to have you on the tape. So if you watch Fast Money, you'll know that for years now, I've talked about not one of the great CEOs in the exchange spaces, but one of the great CEOs in the United States, and that's Terry Duffy. Now, I am predisposed. I love Terry Duffy, so I am biased, but it doesn't mean I'm wrong. Terry, thanks so much for joining us on the tape. Guy, Dan, and Danny, I can't thank you enough. It's my honor. We have a lot to talk about. Dan and Danny have some questions, obviously, market and what's going on at CME Group and those types of things. But for me, for the audience, I always think it's fascinating to sort of learn the backstory. And I'm not suggesting I'm Robert Young by any stretch of the imagination, but Father Knows Best was a show that came out when I was a young lad. And I have three kids of my own. And Terry, I think one of the great gifts you can give your children is the gift of struggle. And I mentioned that because something happened in 1984 that you talk about all the time, so I'm not breaking any news here, that I think really changed the course, not only of your professional life, but of your life in general. Can you speak to that? 
when I became a member here in 1981, as a very young 21-year-old kid, I was the youngest member at the exchange, and you think you have all the answers come from nothing, and a year or two into my trading woes, for lack of a better term, I had a very serious loss, and it was real easy just to walk away and say, well, that's it, but I had a great mentor, and he asked me where I was going to make that money back in the real world. You got to remember, we're coming out of the Jimmy Carter era, unemployment, and inflation and everything else. Some of the things we're starting to see today were so prominent and you really had nowhere else to go. So they asked me where I was going to make the money back in the real world. I'd lost my mom and dad's house because they pledged their city bungalow for me. And I was fortunate to have a backer and he said, I'm going to help you out. And I thought, oh, thank God he's going to write me a check. He goes, I'm not giving you any money. I said, no, no, that's not what I wanted to hear. Y'all think you're going to write me a check? He says, no, I'm going to give you my name. And I'm going to give you my reputation to say that you won't walk away from this debit. Significant $150,000 debit back then was a huge number, still is today, especially when you don't have anything and everything you had was borrowed anyway. So he gave me his reputation. He says, I want you to go back in that pit, try to make $20 tomorrow, $50 the next day, go 10 bar it on uh, Rust Street at night. And, and you do that and you call me when it's paid off. And three years later, I placed a call to him and he guaranteed the loan at a clearing member. And I called him, I was so excited. I said, Vince, I gotta tell you something. Today's the day. He said, Terry, don't you think they called me first? I've been wanting to hook for this for the last three years. I said, excellent point, but we're good now. And it was just such a life lesson at a very young age, which unfortunately a lot of these kids today don't see it. So it taught me great discipline, Guy, and I've been able to utilize that discipline my entire life. I've always looked for the exit before the entrance, no matter what I do. Every trade I've ever entered into my entire career, I always said, okay, where's my out point before my entrance point? And I think that's what's missing a lot today with some of the younger people that are participating in the markets. Everybody believes buy and go up and sell. They don't understand that you better look for a backdoor once in a while, or at least know how to get out of a market. I just think it's just a lost art, but it'll come back. It always does. I've just been around too long not to see it. So I was very blessed to have great people mentor me like that. And it's helped me with my leadership skills here at CME. So everything I've done here at CME, when I took the company public in 02, when I looked at acquiring the Board of Traders or the New York Mercantile Exchange and COMEX, everything we did, I was looking for, okay, if this doesn't work, before I do it, where's my out? I always want to find my out. And I think that's been a lost art with some of the younger people today. You know, it's interesting. I don't want to play stock market here, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you took CEO over, I think, in 2016. And since that point, the stock has more than doubled. But for the five years prior, and you can go back and look, the stock sort of meandered. So if you don't think managerial skills and leadership is important, I just encourage you folks to go look and overlay a chart of the CME group when Terry took over in the years prior. But what's important is you've always been at the forefront of things. Now, I started my career on the floor of the New York Mercantile Exchange, and I long for those days. And in a lot of ways, I am an absolute dinosaur. But you've always seemed to be one step ahead in sort of seeing what's down on the horizon in terms of evolving with the times at CME Group. Can you speak to that? Because it's not just one instance. There are a number of different things that you've done over the years. I like to look at the real world. And I think sometimes we all get in our bubbles when I was trading a lot, I would literally go to grocery stores and see what people had in their grocery carts to see if beef was going to go up or chicken was going to go down. I could go to another city and I would spend a week there and I would get in traffic and drive and I would see how long it took me to get from point A to point B in order to see how unemployment was going to be over a certain projected period of time. Back in the day, if you recall, there was a lot of cars that never had personalized license plates and you could tell which cars were leased, which cars were owned and how the auto industry was going to go. So I used to do a lot of that 
on the ground type of transaction. So when I look at how I've led to CME, I have always tried to look at what I think people want tomorrow, today. So I try to figure that out. And you're not always going to be right when you do that. But if you put your head in the sand and just get complacent, complacency kills. And I'm a huge believer in that. So when I came from the same school you came from, I came from the trading floor. And a lot of people thought, well, what does a trader know about running a big company? And it just gave me the insight to go forward and think about other things that traders didn't know they want. And one of the things I realized at a very young age running the company in 02 was capital efficiency. So I always thought of capital efficiencies. How do I take a dollar, make it look like five, and reduce the risk on top of it? And that's what I try to do here. It's part of everything I think about when I try to lead the company forward. How can I bring the company forward, not leverage, eliminate risk, but create more capital efficiencies? That's a big part of how I look at the next thing going forward, whatever it may be. So I'm always kind of thinking, and you suffer from that stuff personally because it wears you out. I'll get up in the middle of the night. I'll be doing a presentation to my board in my head. I just constantly want to think about how we evolve. And when you're running an exchange guy, everybody thinks of the CME, the Chicago Board of Trade, the New York Merck, the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, all these old Luddites that just can't get out of their own way. It's truly not that case anymore. We're a technology company. We're a transaction company. We're a data business company. We have joint ventures with S&P Global. We're an industry business. We have diverse revenues coming in today that we never had. We're in 225 countries around the world. We used to be four walls. That was our distribution hub, four walls. So it's come a long way. So I continually look at the evolution of the business and try to figure out what the client needs for tomorrow today. And you're also the presenting sponsor of On The Tape. And when I came to you with this idea, you didn't even flinch. You said, Guy, whatever you need, we're behind you. And it's been an honor to have you by our side throughout this. And we've grown. It's because of your help. But you mentioned something a few minutes ago in terms of boots on the ground and things that you're seeing. I don't think, and you've written about this. I've seen numerous interviews where you talk about this, the importance of futures trading and how it affects everyone's everyday life from their grocery shopping to buying a home. Can you speak to that? It is. And I'll tell you, I had a very interesting conversation with the United States Senator yesterday on some proposals that's in Washington. And some could be damaging. There's always something out of Washington that scares the hell out of everybody. But I reminded the Senator of if, in fact, when you add additional cost on to participants who make markets, they never pay for it. All they do is widen the spread and the consumers pay for it. And so you have to constantly look at what people are doing as far as the efficiencies in the marketplace. So I've seen that over and over again, Guy. Most people don't realize the importance of what's going on at CME Group in terms of the impact it has on their everyday life. And they can watch the evening news at six o'clock and they'll talk about gasoline prices going higher and food inflation and those things. But it all starts with where you are located. And I think if people were to understand that, embrace that better, I'm not suggesting things would be better, but at least they'd be further up the learning curve in terms of what's going on in everyday life. I'll give you a line. I had the pleasure of meeting a gentleman by the name of Milton Freeman. Milton was an amazing guy, really sweetheart of a guy. And he was very instrumental back in CME in the early 70s of helping us launch financial futures. And so when I was a young chairman here in 02 and 03, and Milton came to the exchange one day, and it was like fanfare. It was this great American hero of Milton Freeman. And I asked Dr. Freeman, I said, you know, what do you think? And he said, Terry, let me tell you something. If we did not have futures markets today, we would have to invent them in order to go forward. 
That's the critical nature that they play. Could you imagine if you had no risk management on the price of food, what the cost of food could potentially be? Could you imagine if you had no risk management on mortgages that are issued, the trillions of dollars of debt in this country, if it had nowhere to lay off that risk? To me, that is what's really validating of the necessity of the futures industry and where it's come from. You wrote an op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal. It was entitled, Wall Street is losing the best and brightest. Now, that's something you could have written yesterday, but you wrote that in 2013. Now, think about that. What did you see that, by the way, nobody else was seeing at that time? Well, I saw all the bad things that have happened in finance over the last several years. And then I saw who was coming in to participate into the marketplaces. It's a whole new generation of young people. And 1983 was the last year financial services was the most sought after profession in the United States or maybe in the world. Technology has since become the most sought after profession for the average person who just loves technology. So when you look at what happened with Orange County, you look at what happened with long-term capital management, you look at what happened with the crisis of 08, the young people today have only seen despair, people doing bad things, and why would they want to enter into that world? And so they've gone a different path. The amazing thing is you say I could write that piece today. The beauty of that piece then, well, I thought it was right and I still do today, but things have finally changed. I saw a statistic the other day where financial services is actually becoming, if not more, of an exciting future for young people than technology. And one could say, well, why is that? Technology has become a touch commoditized for a lack of a better term. We all kind of get the joke now. Before, nobody knew how to plug in a computer. We all kind of know how to do this stuff now. But what's going on? Look at Reddit. Look at Robinhood. Look at the explosion of people wanting to participate in the marketplace today. But what got them there? Technology got them there. So I think the best and brightest are now going into more and more financial services because they want to be able to drive their own portfolio. So I think it's quite fascinating. But the reason I wrote it is because I'm very concerned about an industry that had such a black eye on it. Look at 08. I mean, we're all around there in 08. It's hard to recover from that. And why would you want to go into something where every day on the news, your mom and dad lost their job because of this. Something happened. People lost their homes and they're blaming Wall Street for it. So why would you want to go into that profession? So I really felt, and I still do, that we lost a lot of opportunities to bring in good quality people into the business. But I think that has turned the corner. And I think technology has allowed that to happen. I was at Goldman Sachs when we met, and there were 6,000 people at Goldman when I was there. And there was an absolute culture. And that culture was from the top down. It started with Lloyd, and it permeated through the firm. And I believe that's exactly what's going on at CME Group. I'm sure you learned a lot of lessons from a lot of those people over the years. And now you're able to recruit and bring in the best talent. Can you speak to the importance of culture and how you instill it there? That's an ever-changing event. I watch your show and you're sitting in your living room. So how do I cultivate talent when sometimes the talent's not around to be cultivated? Do I do it over a Zoom call? Do I just assume that that person is going to be good for my company going forward? Or do you still want to have that interaction of having somebody in the office and saying, okay, I think they can do this job. So it's changed a lot, Guy, in the last 18 months. But I will say the way we've been able to cultivate talent is the exciting nature of how we are investing in our business. 
And we've invested in our business in, say, three main areas, technology, data, and, and execution. And that's become very attractive for a lot of young people to be a part of. And when you're headquartered in Chicago, everybody says, well, it's a Chicago company. Then they realize, well, well he's got 1,000 people in London. He's got 2,000 people in New York. Whatever the number may be, he's got people in Singapore. He's got people in Hong Kong. I could kind of go this vertical and horizontal in this company and do quite well. It's very diverse, clearing, risk, legal, trading. There's so many different parts of the company that people can participate in. And I encourage my employees to go from one section of the company to the other. So I think it makes the company better. And I think when you look at our workforce, I think our average age is 43. It's very diverse. And that's good because our customer base is very diverse. So if I have a bunch of people thinking the same way, they're not going to know what the hell the client wants. I tell every one of my people that work here, if you walk in this place and you have no idea what the hell the market's doing, you probably should leave. I'm not saying you have to trade it, but just, damn it, understand what we do. And I think that's been resonating a lot. I'm teaching some of my own people options classes because they're here working for the company, but they go, I'm not sure how an option trade works. No, and you can learn from anybody. You know, I've learned a great deal from Dan Nathan over the years and Danny Moses over the last basically year that we've been together. And, you know, I kid around a lot about the big chill and the big short, but Danny was obviously featured prominently in a couple of Michael Lewis book. And he has some questions a little more granular in terms of some of the things he's seeing and maybe you can help educate us all. Danny. Terry, thanks for coming on here. And I guess when guys started out, you began talking about late 70s, early 80s, when you really got going. And that was a period of inflation. We've had a couple of rate cycles over the last 30, 40 years, but this one is coming with a lot of inflation. And so I know you like volatility like all of us, because that's great business. Just curious, you guys are obviously set up perfectly for this. Interest rates continue to be the top product for you guys. What does it feel like right now as we're entering this inflationary period and what appears to be a sustained potentially rate hike cycle coming on here? It appears to me, it's almost like when you get so excited about a trade because you make money, then you lose money. And it's so depressing because this is something that I felt has been such a long time coming to where we're finally starting to get to today. And I actually think it's healthy for the overall market to get to the place we're coming to today. Unfortunately, the inflationary picture. We haven't seen inflation for 20 plus years outside of what, 07, maybe 08, we saw a touch of inflation. But otherwise, it's been an inflationary free period. And I don't think people know how to deal with it, Danny. And as I said earlier, when people say transitory, nobody can even spell transitory anymore. How long the definition of it is, five minutes to some, five years to others. But I think that people really got over their skis here a little bit. And I think the monetary policy, not only here in the United States, but this, the safety valve of central banks around the world has done more harm than good eventually. You got to be able to get in and get out of that. You can't stay in it forever because complacency, as I said earlier, complacency kills. And now we're going to get into a situation where people are going to have to participate in markets that they've never, ever seen before. You got to remember the average person participating, if they're 40 to 42 years of age, they haven't seen a downtick they haven't loved yet. They buy every damn downtick because that's all they've ever seen. But they've never traded inflation. They've never traded mostly a big rate market. So I'm not saying rates are going to explode. But when you have a perfect storm, which I believe we have right now, if I'm running the country right now, I just take the rates up. If you really want to have people be able to eat and you're worried about voters, the only way you're going to take some of these prices down is to make them more expensive from a financing standpoint. And that is just the way it works. That's the only tool I believe the Fed has left, and they're afraid to use it. 
The one thing that I think is interesting, I don't think this current administration cares as much about the stock market as they do about votes. The prior one may have looked at it differently, but I think that you could see the Fed be a little bit more aggressive only to tamp down some of these inflationary concerns that we have coming. So I could see rates going up significantly. And now what is significantly? I guess when you're coming off a base of zero, anything on an uptick is a lot. So I am very much looking forward to managing that risk. We're seeing massive upticks in our open interest. We're seeing a lot of trade in our interest rate products that we didn't see six months ago. So it has been fairly active here over the last bit of time since the Fed has kind of made some indications that transitory might mean a little bit something longer. Yeah. And to make it even better for you and maybe worse for the consumer is energy volatility we're seeing because now we're going through a period with higher energy costs. And to your point, it's great there's hedging products out there for airlines, companies be able to hedge out their fuel costs. But I don't think that's being baked in either. And whether it's about demand and supply or whether it's about inflation, whatever, what are you seeing in the energy markets too? And is it just as volatile? It seems to be certainly natural gas and so forth as we're seeing in rates right now. It's amazing what's going on in the energy space. I was on Dan's Network of CNBC April 20th, 2020. And I was being chastised because oil went to minus 3750. So not only were they giving it away, they were going to pay you to take it on top of it. Now oil's at $81 a barrel in a very, very short period of time. That just goes to show you how quick things can change in the energy space. And I think when you have potentially new green new deals, which I'm supportive of the planet, we got to do that. But you better have a plan to make sure you have enough of the product that you're living on today before you decide you're just going to rip out the pipelines and things of that nature. That's the problem with natural gas right now. It's trapped in the eastern seaboard. They can't even get this stuff moved to other places. The LNG, we have an LNG liquefied natural gas contract here at CME, and these tankers are booked out for years. You can't even get this stuff on a tanker to get to some of these other countries so they can have gas. And as you know, Danny, probably 80% of the American homes are heated by natural gas. And it's going to be really interesting to see what happens this winter, especially if we get into a cold cycle with the weather. So I think this is a self-inflicted wound, for a lack of a better term. And I understand that we have to change things, but you don't just rip band-aids off of things and put people at risk. And I think that's unfortunately what we're done right now. So then you're going to see the higher prices. I said, I'm the only guy in America that's testified at $135 a barrel for crude oil, got yelled at for minus when it was free plus payment. And now I'm going to probably get yelled at again because it's going up. One last thing, just on rates, just to go back there for a second. And we talk about this on the show a lot. There's a lot of volatility in what's supposed to be the most liquid security in the world. And guy still thinks people are doing outcries and trading like that. It's not happening, obviously. But as far as that, 120 basis points to 142 rather quickly back to 101.15% on the tenure, that's a lot of volatility. And I know you guys trade that and see that. Do you think we're going to continue to see those wide swings? Or are we going to reach a period where things will feel a little bit more normal, either moving up or moving down? You know, it's funny about that, Danny. You say about the wide swings of, say, 120 on the 10 to 151, 160 on the 10. And we think that's a wide swing. In the old days, that was a tick in the market. That was a day trade at best. I think it's all measured in different ways. And I do think we're going to continue to see the volatility trading like that in the 10-year as it walks itself up a little bit here over the next six months to a year. But yes, I do think you're going to continue to see that type of volatility. I don't see how it goes away. There's just too much uncertainty. And one of the things that I think is really fascinating, Denny, is you're looking at the UK and some of the other European nations kind of leading the way 
on rate increases on the overnight, which is really unusual. But I think it just goes to show you that this is an issue. It's a problem. And the United States has to deal with it. So, Terry, you just mentioned volatility and you talked about some products that obviously keep the lights on there. But one of the most exciting one, and we end up talking about it a lot on the tape, is Bitcoin. And so we know that the SEC is about to rule and, we, you know, obviously they could reject it. They could approve it. They could delay it. There's four applications for ETFs on Bitcoin. But what is interesting about these ETFs is that they want to buy Bitcoin futures. You guys listed the first Bitcoin future back in 2017 at the time on CNBC's fast money. We had a little Bitcoin bug guy. You remember that thing? And we were tracking it and we were saying, well, that's the top. This vaunted institution is going to launch a Bitcoin future. And it listen, it obviously had nothing to do. It was more about demand for that sort of product. And you guys were at the forefront of it, but you stuck it out and you guys have really innovated on that product. And now you're going to see these in ETFs that are likely to find themselves in a whole host of investors who wouldn't have bought a Bitcoin or a piece of a Bitcoin or something like that, which I think is really interesting. Talk to us a little bit about that, how you're thinking about it. Is this a product that you guys really see growing and into other crypto assets? Dan, it's a great question. And I'll tell you what, it was one of the hardest decisions I had to make in 2017 was to go ahead and list Bitcoin futures because I had very high Nobel laureate type of people telling me I'm out of my mind. And we all know how Jamie Dimon has felt about it. And Jamie's a friend. And so I get all that. But at the same time, I'm here to manage risk. And if, in fact, people are going to take risk on certain assets, and I think that there's enough of a natural buyer seller, then I'm going to list the product and I went and worked with the agency. But to your point about the ETFs, which really is interesting about ProShares and Valkyrie and a couple other ones that have filed with the SEC, they're all based on my futures contracts. So every ETF that will be issued to a client will be offset with a futures contract in order to create that ETF. That is a big vote of confidence for CME's crypto portfolio. So does it mean that we're going to trade more cryptocurrencies than euro dollars or more crypto than treasuries? Probably not. But is it a validation of our product to some degree? Probably. But what I think is interesting about crypto, and I don't want to bore everybody, but I think it's finally starting to get defined. It's not so much defined by the price because that's just the fun stuff, right? You mentioned that on your show, you'd have a ticker there. 6,000, 10,000, 30,000, what the hell's going on, right? So that's the fun part about some of these products. I think the way it's being defined today is how can this product help expedite the transactions of fiat currencies? And if it comes to that, which I think it will, the best way to do the risk offset is in the futures market. And the natural thing is look at how when the Chicago Board of Trade in the early 80s created the first U.S. bond futures contract. The risk was amazingly offset for the government to issue more debt because they had a futures contract. And I think the same thing could happen with the crypto contract. I'm not predicting volume, but I think that's the natural evolution of it. So the price won't be discussed. It always will be. But the usage of the cryptocurrencies, whether it's Ether, whether it's Bitcoin or others, I think that's the fascinating part about what's going on in crypto today. Yeah, it's interesting. Back in 2017, it was clearly a retail-driven craze right now. And I think a lot of retail investors probably wouldn't have known how to use that. I know that you guys have really leaned in on education. And you've also created these micro-future contracts that are probably easier to use for a retail audience. Tell us a little bit about those sorts of products. And was it really geared towards retail? Because again, you're talking about risk management. You're talking about hedging. You're talking about people who own spot and 
they have the ability to learn how to use these other products that help mitigate risk, but also keep them in a position. So were these micro futures contracts, were they really geared towards retail? The way we define retail and the way Robinhood might define retail or DraftKings defines retail are three different things. I define retail as a professional participant in the market that trades on it every single day. DraftKings might define retail as somebody walking down the street that wants to bet the Packers versus the Giants or something like that, right? So that's their retail. The question is, is my retail starting to look more like their retail? And if so, do I want to offer it to them in some meaningful way? And that's where I think this is going because retail is going to be redefined from the professional participant to the person walking from point A to point B that wants to participate in some type of activity. And we've always historically stayed away from that, whether it's event futures or things of that nature or sports betting. My friends at NASDAQ just invested into a sports book and they're going to be the oversight for it. Listen, that's where the world's going. We didn't push it there. There's, what, 26 states today that allow gambling. It's just be proliferating everywhere you go. So the question is, if in fact our governments believe that's okay, why is it not okay to allow people that are walking down the street to decide if they think gold is going to go from 1820 to $1,830 an ounce in the next five minutes? So I think that's kind of where the retail trading is going. And crypto has initiated that type of behavior in financial services versus gambling. So they're starting to intersect, Dan, is where I see this going. The question is, where is my participation going to be in this? I assure you, I'm not turning a blind eye to it. I would, but it's hard to when your government allows things, vices that were absolutely people were going to jail for a couple of years ago that are now perfectly legal, whether it's marijuana or whether it's gambling or other vices. So I'm looking at them and where you will continue to offer our clients the services they need. But crypto is leading that charge. Terry, I can tell you that before every football season years ago, there would be traders on your floor there that would create over-unders and wins and losses for each team. And so we'd have markets. I wasn't even trading commodities or anything like that, but there'd be markets coming from traders on the CME. So it didn't matter what they were trading. You're right. That's the mentality. But you bring up something that whether it's legal or not, I want to talk about LIBOR and the transition to what we call the secured overnight financing rate, SOFR, I guess, or what people are calling it. That's happening as we speak. That's probably a big deal for you guys. I think it's going to be a great product, much more reliable. Can you talk about what's going on with that? One of the things that we look at when people are transitioning off LIBOR, people said there's going to be a jump ball and there's going to be massive disruption coming off LIBOR onto something else. And we all kick the can. And even LIBOR's the can's been kicked for a certain period of time before we transition off. But now it's coming to fruition. I have always said, and I said to my team, this is an opportunity. Now, we have the biggest LIBOR-based futures contract in the world called Eurodollar Futures. As you know, it's an interest rate contract. The question is, when I listed my SOFR, I have 92% of the SOFR business. I'm getting validation not only from businesses such as Polaris and others that have now written all their loans on SOFR-based. All the new mortgages have addendums in them for the refis that it's all SOFR-based. Banks are now saying we're going to do SOFR-based. So to me, this has been one of the great opportunities in interest rates that I've ever seen in my career. And why do you get an opportunity? Sometimes in low volatility, which none of us really like, especially in my world, it gives us that opportunity to think differently. And that's what we did. So we became the administrator for term SOFR. We listed the Bisbee with Bloomberg to give the credit component of the spread 
on the sofa overnight. So there's a lot of things that we've been able to do because the markets haven't been absolutely going crazy other than what you described earlier, going from 130 to 150 on the 10-year. So that to us isn't that giant of a move. So it gives us the opportunity to continue to innovate and transition this business. And why is it important? I have the biggest open interest I have in the back month of my Eurodollar options contracts today. Why does that matter? Because they're LIBOR-based today. I have a fallback plan before those contracts were put on that all those contracts will be turned into SOFR-based. And everybody piled into them knowing full well they're SOFR-based. So to me, that's another validation that some of the things that we're doing are correct. Otherwise, they would have looked for other avenues to manage that risk in the back month of the Eurodollar futures because it goes out 10 years. That, to me, is what's really exciting about what the change is going to happen here. So we feel like we're in a really strong spot, Danny, to continue on that. And if the volatility continues to pick up, listen, everything's got a borrowing component associated with it, no matter what it is. And rates, especially in a highly leveraged society that we live in today, you're going to have to manage them no matter how big the moves are or not. One of the biggest changes over the last couple of years, growth industries, I guess, has been ESG investing. Can you speak to what's happening at CME in terms of ESG and some of the things you put into place there? We've done some stuff. Obviously, we list an ESG 500 on the S&P, so we trade that. We're not a manufacturing company, obviously, so we're a bit different. But we are listing contracts such as Lithium Geo and other products for people to manage their risk on and then environmental type products. It's actually picked up quite a bit, to be honest with you. The lithium market's picked up a little bit for us. But again, these are slow moving products, but I think we all need to take some form of investment, put it into these ESG products and understand that the acronym of ESG is not going to go away. And whether you agree or disagree with it, it's almost irrelevant. You have to be in compliance. And that's what we are doing. And so we're listing products and we're making sure from a governance perspective that we're in compliance also. So because as a public company, as you referenced, my shareholders are very concerned about that. And so I make sure that we're in compliance. We want to be respectful of your time, but you spend a lot of time, obviously, the lion's share in Chicago. You're out in New York every once in a while. If you have to go to a steak dinner, I know where I'm going. Either going to Gibson's, which is some place in Chicago, I guess, or Sparks, which is the place in the United States. Where are we going to dinner? I will go anywhere with you boys, as you know. I am a big fan of you, Guy. You're just a great human being. And Dan, I've gotten to know a little bit when I've done this show in New York. And Danny Moses, I know of you more than I know you. But I will go anywhere you boys want. I love Sparks. I'll call my friend Steve Lombardo over at Gibson's and make sure that we can have a primo table for you guys so you're well-recognized when people walk by and give you the nod of the hat. But there's a lot of good spots to go, but we'll go to both. How about we do a home and home? Well, well here, how's this, Terry? We're going to bridge the gap. Danny and I are headed over to a place called Fort Charles Prime Rib after this. And there's, they're from Chicago, the Hogsock Group. You know those guys, Bavettes and stuff like that? So that's our kind of local here. We go there after we record this podcast. So hopefully you'll come in. You'll do it in person with us. We'll do some fast money, and then we'll go to Fort Charles. Well, I hope to be on Fast Money soon and uh, look forward to talking to you guys about a couple of different things that we think are pretty exciting. But if I come out to New York and do the show, we got to get big Joe Mazzella and go down to Arthur Street. And uh, that way, nobody pays, right? <laughs> well, we all pay in some way, but nobody pays financially. Listen, Terry, again, thank you so much for being such an advocate for us. Thank you, CME Group, for sponsoring On The Tape since the beginning. And thank you for being so generous with your time. We look forward to speaking again. Dan Nathan, Dan Moses, my dear friend Guy Adami, thank you very much. Continued success with your platform, and I look forward to seeing you boys soon. 
Hey, it's Dan here. I wanted to let you know about a brand new podcast from Risk Social Media called Breaking Even with former golf pro Ned Michaels. We cover everything from golf to real estate, options trading, and sports betting. Each week, Ned is joined by some of the biggest names in golf and sports handicapper, Jonathan Coachman. Guy Danny and I drop by to attempt to fix Ned's swing at the markets. New episodes drop every Thursday, so follow it in your favorite podcast store and don't forget to leave us a review. Rick Heitzman is a founder and general partner of First Mark Capital, an early-stage venture capital firm where he's led investments in market leaders like Pinterest, Airbnb, StubHub, and DraftKings. For the past two years, Rick was named one of the world's top venture capitalists on Forbes' Midas list. He's also an investor in Risk Reversal Media, the parent company of On The Tape. Rick, this is your second time back. We had to have you back for a couple of reasons here. You had a heck of a week last week, and we want to go through all of that. But thank you for joining Guy and me again on the tape. It's always good to be on the tape. It's always good to see you guys, even if some of you are on laptops. But uh, it's always fun to have a good conversation about tech and the Yankees. We got <laughs> Guy, you ready to talk about the Yankees here, buddy? I am through my misery period. So, yes, I am. I am ready to talk about the Yankees. No longer too soon. You know, I was with Rick, I feel like it was like late August, and it was when the Yankees, it, it, it wasn't like, they had that huge run, and they were kind of softening up a little bit, and you just not, it's not exactly what you wanted to see them rolling into September at that point, right? When we were at that Yeah, game. they didn't really have that grip, but you know, what we saw was they have a team who could hit a lot of three-run homers, they have a great ace, and we think we're going to come back strong. A couple more pieces, and you know, I'm, I'm looking for number two, for the next cha- world championship about this time next year. As am I, Rick Heitzman. As am I. They're not as far away as Dan Nathan wants us to think. So thank you, Rick, for assuaging some of my concerns here on On The Tape. I mean, Guy was going to be stewing all offseason on that, (laughs) just so you know. All right, well, here's the deal, right? So you've been with us on The Tape. You've been a great supporter of Guy and myself and obviously On The Tape with Danny Moses. You had a heck of a week. That's why I kind of had to have you back in here. You... Obviously, have this storied career as a venture capitalist here in New York City, but you also launched a SPAC, I think, almost exactly a year ago, First Mark Horizon, and then you made the announcement of your target last week. So we wanted to talk about that. We want to talk what you think about the SPAC landscape and how it, what that means for venture right now. And you also had an amazing exit for an investment that First Mark made. I think you led the first institutional round um, for Frame.io, and that sold for nearly $1.3 billion to Adobe last week. So let's talk about it. Let's get into the SPAC acquisition. What'd you do and why'd you do it? And what do you think about the landscape right now? So thanks, Dan. You know, it was a great week last week. We've had a lot of great weeks at First Mark, but that was uh, that was a special day. So I appreciate acknowledging that. Leading it off, I think being able to go to First Mark Horizon, First Mark Acquisition Corp, we were one of the first VCs to be out there, one of the first VCs to be able to say, we're able to take you from first institutional check through the public markets. We kind of printed that trademarked full stack, full service VC, and that we're able to be with you and be your trusted partner all along that journey. So we started off like that a little over a year ago, and it was almost a year to the day that we announced our acquisition or merger with a great group of entrepreneurs in a huge market in a company called Starry. It's a new internet company that provides access to the internet for consumers 
consumers and small businesses at a fraction of the cost of what you normally see from your your beloved cable company. And I always say that because nobody has a beloved cable (laughs) company and very few people love their internet service provider. But just like other industries are being recreated with new brands. And if you look at Warby Parker for glasses, you look at Allbirds for shoes or On Running for running sneakers – this new 21st century customer is thinking about the world in a different way, and they want new brands with high value and a brand that they can associate with. And I think Starry is thinking about the internet in that way. Is that like a common thread? Obviously, you look at very early stage companies as first mark VC investments, but when you took this capital that you raised to go out and buy a much more mature company, are there common threads about disruption that, that kind of fit both of those uh, ends of the barbell? There are, there are. They, you were able to see as companies are getting ready for the public markets, they've gone, they've gone from being an idea to having some competency around a technology barrier to entry to then operationalizing it. So oftentimes companies stumble at each step of that journey. Can they build the mousetrap and can they sell the mousetrap or sell the magic? And you know what we look for maybe on the early stages is just a completely different and novel idea and a way to have a competitive advantage based around technology. What we look for in the later stages and as you begin to enter the public markets is not only have you built that better piece of magic that's very different from a technology side, but can you prove that go to market and can you make that whole machine work so you're able to put a dollar in one side of the machine and come out with something different? Obviously, a lot more that public market investors are excited for. Wait, so you're saying in the private markets, you put a dollar in, you get less than a dollar back? Some of my some of my competitors <laughs> do that, and, and it seems to be working in certain environments. Sounds like Dan Nathan's betting with Danny Moses, oh. but that's for something else. Rick, obviously, thanks for joining us. I started this podcast by talking about this Wolf of Wall Street movie, which was ridiculous, but the greatest Wall Street movie of all time was obviously Wall Street. And Gordon Gecko, who's probably full of shit, said something like this. He said, I look at 100 deals a day, I pick one, which is horseshit, but that's okay. You guys probably get five, six, seven deals in front of you a day. You might pick two or three in a year. Can you speak to how you go through that? Because obviously something sticks out to you. Can you talk about the process? Yes. So that, that's a, that's almost the exact metrics that, you know, individually we see five to seven deals a day each, and we have a partnership of uh, five partners. So you think about the hundreds of deals that we see a week, and we might do a dozen as a firm a year. So, you know, that's a pretty thin filter that you, you have to get through. And obviously you have to catch our attention right off the bat. There's probably three things that we think about as we do that. One is, are you attacking a big market? You can never create a big company unless you're attacking a big market. We just talked about Starry and the internet. And obviously, the internet is is right behind food and water in terms of what people want in today's age. So that's a huge market. It's a global market and it's a disruptive technology. The second is, do you have a competitive advantage? If you are able to do that, will other people follow you? So are you doing something different than the next best guy? In Starry's case, just continuing the analogy, they have a full stack of technology of chips, spectrum, routers, and they have been able to build that and have several patents to make sure that no one could fastly follow them. And the third piece would be, 
Who's your management team? Is, is, is the management team playing the role that they were born to play? Have they done things in their life that have not only proven that they know something different about this market, but they've also proven that they're winners? So they, have they had success? Obviously, we like backing athletes. We like people who have shown the grit of persisting through adversity to success. And we also like people who have a very personal problem that they're trying to solve. And that obviously makes you more aware of the problem and increase your passion to do it. Well, you know what? Guy Adami checks all those boxes. Uh, aging athlete, lots of personal problems. <laughs> and I don't even know what the other one was, but you kind of nailed that, Rick. All right. Let's, you know, that, listen, I'm really interested in the SPAC stuff because I think it's kind of flipping the script on a lot of things that's gone on between Silicon Valley and Wall Street. And so, I, you know, I'd love to know, like, what, what did you learn about this last year, right? You, you launched this back and it's a very different, you know, we talked about uh, the processes or the common threads kind of, you know, is that the case? But now there's a, there's hundreds of SPAC groups looking for targets right now. And Guy and me, you know, on Fast Money, we love talking about new companies coming to market and that sort of thing. But it's very different than startup companies that are looking to challenge incumbents. It's a much more mature thing. What did you learn about that process? And what do you think right now? Are we going to have, what are we going to see in the next year or so? Are we going to see tons of companies coming to market to the public markets that should or should not be there in your opinion? So when we started our process, we were early investors in DraftKings. And part of our process was partnering with Jason Robbins, a founder and CEO of DraftKings. And he was part of our founding group and our board of directors to say, for private companies, there has to be a better alternative than the traditional IPO to get into the public markets. Is there a better way to communicate with your investors, your customers? Is there a cleaner way to be able to tell your story? And is that a more beneficial way to go public than a traditional IPO or a direct listing? And we thought, yes, this is a much more eloquent solution for a certain group of companies. And I think that you know every type of public financing has its own customer base of direct listing, traditional IPO, or a sponsored IPO or SPAC. So those are all different things. And then we went to market a little over a year ago. We we were unique. We're early on the trend. And then everybody except my dog and, and guy got a, had a SPAC in, in the six months later. You know, you saw this being the new hot thing and probably more Wall Street than Silicon Valley piling on to if some was good, more is better. And you quickly saw everything spike and anything that goes up must come down. So then you saw kind of all this this entire product line and these investors kind of fall into the trough of disillusionment. That initially someone comes up with an idea, everyone gets excited about the idea, it gets overblown, and then everybody hates on the idea. And I think we're, we've gone through that, and that was maybe the tale of the first quarter and the second quarter where, you know, SPACs are interesting, they're good, but they're not the answer to everybody's problems all the time. And now as we're entering the fourth quarter, we're saying, oh, okay, maybe it's not everything bad and maybe it's not everything good. Maybe just like every other product, there's a good product market fit for some customers and some companies, and it's not for everybody. So you're, so you're seeing the market kind of shuffle itself out. You're also seeing a big gap between SPACs that are serial issuers who know how to get deals done, who have access to independent capital to get pipes done, and you're seeing folks who can't. And I think as the folks who can't are kind of running long in the tooth, and most SPACs have two years after going public to get a deal done, I think you're going to see some odd behavior 
and that may or may not affect their stock price in the public markets. But you're going to see some, you know, lack of a better term, death throws from some of those companies. But I think you're going to see the product line persist as it, it does fit a lot of different structures and a lot of different companies. Well, oddly enough, Rick, the joke's on you because your dog and I are actually in talks to develop a SPAC. It's going to be <laughs> mid-level Italian food for the pet industry. We think it's extraordinarily disruptive, and we're actually going to drop it on you in a few weeks. So you, you're you a bit ahead of us as usual. Listen, your successes are extraordinarily well-documented. We talk about them all the time. We talk about them on Fast Money, and it's pretty amazing. There are obviously some companies that came across your bow, came across your desk that maybe you didn't see something that subsequently you said, you know what? I wish I had a redo on that. Can you speak to one or two of those? Maybe ones that a lot of the folks may never have heard of that are out there now. Uh, yeah, I mean, there we have a thing called the anti-portfolio where we were too smart for our own good or we were just completely wrong in one way or another. You know, years ago, there was a, I was in a board meeting and two, two investors who were sitting next to me in the board meeting said, hey, you should meet these guys. They have a really cool company and some strategics want to invest in it. I said, all right, well, tell me more about the company. What have these guys done? He said, well, they haven't really done that much. They're thinking about dropping out of an engineering PhD. What did they do for work before that? Nothing really. How much revenue do they have? Um, nothing. Zero. Okay, well, what business are they in? Do they have no competition? Oh, they have tons of competition. And I said, well, I must be a sucker. I, I got to catch a plane. I'm not going to really talk about it. And by the way, what kind of name's Google anyway? It sounds ah, stupid. There it is. So you often get caught up in some false frameworks or overthink things. So you know, we, we've missed everything from Google. Along the way, we've missed a lot of like Revolut and the next generation neobanks that are coming to market and they're challenging the incumbents as a digital first bank. We weren't sure how they were all differentiated. We weren't sure who was going to win. Uh, now it's seeming increasingly clear that a lot of them are going to win, and you're going to see a lot of big financings there. We love Warby Parker. We love their founders. We never invested, and that's now a multi-billion-dollar company that's exceedingly well-run by Neil and Dave. So that we've uh, we've probably missed on more than we could even ever name. Yeah. So it's interesting. Over the last kind of um, year and a half, we know that there's been this kind of exodus from Silicon Valley um, and even just California. You know, there's been a lot of movement to Austin, obviously Miami, as it relates to crypto, that sort of thing. And New York has always had this really solid footing in the fintech space. And so you being headquartered here, I know you spend a lot of time, or pre-pandemic, you spend a lot of time all over the place, not obviously just in California. What do you think's going on right now? It seems like there's a, a universal sort of thought amongst the at least the New York venture community that they are benefiting dramatically, right, from kind of the exodus, like I said, and a lot of people in crypto who went to Miami, they kind of all came as soon as it got really hot in late yep. spring, you know, Definitely. they all kind of came up here. What are you guys seeing about your flows right now? I know that you're spending some time back in the office, you're traveling a little bit more. Do you think New York is going to be that massive beneficiary? New York's been a huge, huge beneficiary. People leaving California, people leaving the West Coast, coming to New York. Obviously, Miami's hot, and they don't really have an evolved ecosystem. But as, as folks are thinking about, hey, where can I come that has a critical mass of people? Is there a culture around startups? If my startup doesn't work out, are there people in the industry I'm in? I mean, that could be marketing or fintech or anything else. And even are there big companies that are part of that ecosystem? Google just spent another $2 billion to buy another property in lower Manhattan. Snapchat has over 600 engineers here. So the big fangs are building their second headquarters here. 
And that helps the startup community. Historical fintech companies are huge here. And as you hit on, this is the crypto capital of the world. I know uh, people are trading it and trying to avoid taxes in Florida. But whether their kids want to go to school or they can't send the bugs or the humidity, everyone continues to move north. Well, Rick, you talked about what you're looking for in terms of qualities for investments. And my sense is the similar qualities when you're looking for people to work at FirstMark. But talk to me about the hiring process, because I'm certain there are a lot of people saying, wow, how could I work at a place like FirstMark? What are they looking for? That's a great, great question. I get that a lot every day. Also, we probably aren't as clear as we should be. You know, in general, what we look for are people who have both qualitative and quantitative backgrounds. So can you think about a framework? Do you have financial or strategic skills oftentimes honed at an investment bank or consulting firm? But in addition to that, do you understand the startup ecosystem? Do, you know, have you worked at a startup? Have you started your own company? And therefore, do you have founder empathy? Do you understand that there's more to a startup than being able to do a PowerPoint that's a two-by-two matrix or the right box? And do you understand how hard it is to get the right customer? So as you interact with founders every day, you're bringing that empathy to work and you're able to help them in their journey because you've been on that journey yourself. All right, let's bring it back to like a fast money question that sure. if you were on with us, we might ask yeah, you. So, ahead, so, so, well, let's say Frame.io, okay? So this company just sold to Adobe, which is a massive, obviously, SaaS company here for $1.3 billion. I have to assume, and this goes back to kind of some of your commentary about SPACs, that they were a SPAC candidate, but they chose to go with a strategic, a big strategic buyer here. How do you think about that sort of thing? I'm sure you're seeing all different portfolio companies of yours have to evaluate all these different things. Why did do you think that deal made sense for them to go with a strategic? And are we about to see big strategics like Adobe um, start to gobble up a lot of things? Interest rates are still relatively low. They've come up. There's a lot of cash around in the system. These companies um, have benefited a great deal. They've been buying back their cash. They, they got great balance sheets. Is this going to be uh, an interesting period for m and I think the world's changed a little bit from maybe even five years ago. And there's so many different alternatives to finding liquidity if you're either a founder or an early stage investor. Obviously, you have the classic IPO. You have direct listings. You now have sponsored IPOs or SPACs. You've always had M&A. But because of the capital in the system, you're seeing a lot more secondary opportunities. So that's another lever for you to get liquid, especially if you're a founder. So often founders are not in a rush to, to get liquid because they've been able to take some chips off the table along the way. But as you get closer to that point, you're growing your business, you have a critical mass of people and revenue, and obviously a market-leading product, you're approached by people who it makes a lot of sense. So Frame.io is a collaboration platform around video. And if you think about Adobe, which owns things like Photoshop, what's the next generation of, of creative and artistic tools, the next generations around video? It's less one-to-one, like most software is. It's going to be much more collaboration. And that could be around video or audio, as we see even here today. So th- that's where the world's going. And obviously, there's a tremendous strategic fit yeah, it was one of the highest multiples paid for a software company in New York's history. And I think that shows what a good strategic fit it is. But also from the standpoint of the founder and the CEO, you want to see that vision realized. And if you're Emory at Frame and you're talking to the creative cloud at Adobe where almost everybody has it on their desktop, you're talking about the Behance community, you want to see your full product vision realized and you want to see – that your product's in the hands of every creator and 
what you originally envisioned of this being a important widespread products there. And therefore, you could be part of you know getting your product out more broadly to market. So I think not only was it a good strategic fit from Adobe's perspective, but there was also a great fit from the founder's perspective in their ability to not only realize value for their employees, their investors, and themselves, but also realize the company's vision. So you know, you've had some tremendous success in some Web2 sort of names. And I would say that that Frame.io fits that kind of genre, if, if you will. What are some of the themes that you guys are starting to think about now? I know that you've made some investments in crypto. Um, are there some kind of decentralized kind of creator-based sort of things in Web3? I think that's what the kids are calling it, right, Guy Adami? Um, <laughs> Dallas, are, are, guys <laughs> all over the Dallas. <laughs> yeah, no, I love the Web3, I'm, I'm, but I'm holding out for the later version. No, but it's interesting, Rick. You just mentioned a DAO, a decentralized yeah. autonomous organization. I, I keep hearing about new ideas, new companies that are being formed, and they're not really companies, and they're being governed by DAOs. And does that disrupt the VC model? And is it something that you're spending more and more time on? We're spending time on things that could be disruptive to ourselves or, or to the market on the whole. So, I mean, DAOs have everybody, that's exactly what it is. Everybody has a different take on, therefore, what does that mean? And I think we're still early in how how call it Web 3.0 communities are formed, governed, and managed. And I think that they'll be part of it that will continue like that, obviously picked up by the crypto and the blockchain communities early and out of the box. So we're thinking about that, how that could disrupt the company formation and capital formation processes. You know, last, as you talk about Web 2.0, I think it was the beginning of, of kind of the networked economy. And whether that's Frame.io collaborating on video or Airbnb having a marketplace of places to stay that disrupt traditional lodging, we've participated across that. As we look forward, though, we, you know, it could be DAOs and it could be crypto and it could be blockchain where we've made several bets on whether that's – and I know, Dan, you're a big helium miner. I am. So we could uh, – <laughs> and the helium ecosystem for a decentralized internet – but we also think about, you know, what are the next generation of consumer products? I know you're also a big customer of Roe. So Roman Health and being able to provide a direct-to-consumer health experience. And, you know, even as we think about further advantages of a networked uh, commercial and enterprise economy with things like a decentralized finance system. Well, it's funny. You make a joke. I, I love, you know, I've gotten to know Zach and Rob uh, at Row through you. And I think what they're building in the telemedicine, it just expanded from that first product that a lot of people know them for because Zach has those great commercials all over CNBC most of the days. All right. Here's the other thing. You had this monster week. We went through all that. We got a look at where you're focused on next as it relates to to first mark, but you're also going to be my co-host on OK Computer. It's OKAY, people. Um, that is a podcast that Risk Reversal Media is going to be launching pretty soon. Um, we had Katie Stanton and Moxie Ventures on last week. She's going to be one of our co-hosts. You're going to be the other. And then we have this great group. We're calling them a collective of kind of Web3 folks. And you guys know these names. They've all been on our, our podcast. Uh, Jared Dicker of the Churning Group. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Coin shares. Yeah. Uh, Sally Shin, who just joined United Masters. Yeah. Impact Packy McCormick of Not Boring. We love Packy. He's been on a couple times too. And I know that he's done some events with Firstmark in the past. So we're really excited about that. We're really going to focus on the intersection between Web 2 investing and entrepreneurship and Web 3. And those thought leaders in Web 3 are going to help maybe this boomer think about it a little bit. We're going to have Guy Adami. Guy, you're going to do this OK Boomer segment. It's going to be almost like a kind of Luddite meets the future of tech. And you're going to get in there and we're going to have some fun with that. 
just going to be me being me, which is I tell people all the time, they say, what's the trick to being on television? I say, just be yourself because everybody else is taken. So for yeah. me, this is going to be easy as can be. All right. So, so Rick, you've done a lot of things. What do you think of, of podcast co-host of, of what, what does that mean to you? Are you ready to kind of dive I, into I, this I, world I have, here? I have no idea what that is, but I'd love <laughs> to try it. Like most things in my life, I'll, 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 why not try it? So it's going to be great. I'm, I'm super excited about it. I think as you provide people, you guys had great questions today, access to this world, which oftentimes people feel is, is too opaque and being able to provide a transparent voice either on the trends of investing, what we're seeing in the technology world or where we see it's going. And you know, fortunately, we've been doing this for long enough. We, we've made enough friends that they could come and spend time with us. And that's always a lot of fun. Well, listen, we're really excited about a guy, um, you know, more so he's going to figure out how to turn on his TV and, and, and watch something on the Netflix. That's going to be really, I think, the first topic that we know. But we're, we're excited. We have a great group of thought leaders we have. They're all so accomplished. And I think of you and Katie and just the successes that you guys have had as investors and operators and, and the like. So we're really excited about that. So people stay tuned. We wanted to give you a little more access to Rick and his thought process and, and just the, the kind of amazing work that he's done helping hundreds of companies over the last couple of decades through First Mark. So Rick, thank you for being with Guy and myself on the tape again. And Always look- good seeing you guys and super excited for OK. Yeah. OK. Well, I think we're going to call it OKC, right, Guy? Is that what we're going to do? OKC? We don't have Kevin Durant on this podcast, <laughs> although we could. And listen, you mentioned hundreds of companies that uh, First Mark has helped. One of those hundreds of companies is Risk Reversal Media. So, Rick, thank you so much for believing in us and being a driving force behind everything that we've been doing over the last year. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.